I'm Isabel Allen, editor of Architecture Today, and this is 80 Conversations with Inevidesk. And I am delighted to be talking to to very distinguished architects, Simon Alford of Alford Hall, Monaghan Morris, and Glenn Howes of Glenn Howes Architects. Um, And the focus today is the post-building, which Alford Hall, Monaghan Morris have just magnificently transformed. So Simon, do you want to kick off and uh, tell us where the project started? Yeah, and the project started actually in the south of France rather glamorously with a meeting, a a discussion with a client I'd known for many years but never worked with about a building that they'd just unlocked that had been trapped for many years in some kind of broken deal. And it's it's it was called the Post Building and it's um, on the junction of Museum Street, High Holborn and New Oxford Street. And it was a magnificent um, building. It had a one acre floor plate, double height floors. It was above the, the railway line that served the Royal Mail Group. Um, you know, and I said, look, let's go and have a look at it. When we looked at it, they said that you know, they'd looked at it a number of times. And to be honest, I'd looked at it a number of times. But I said to them, the thing that this building has that no other building in, in London has, is it has this amazing one acre floor plate, one acre and six six metres high volumes. It was, it was like arriving in a stadium in the middle of London. And of course, it was also embedded in the history of the place. So, you know, it was built on the site of once, what were once the rookeries. This is Hogarth's um, uh, Gin Alley. And in the background, you can see Hawksmoor's Church, which is directly opposite the site, with uh, George III on the steeple. Of, of the church was the temple at Canossus. Uh, so it, it's kind of magically locked into London's history, yet it was a piece of uh, London history, uh, but the building was a machine. It was a machine for delivering the mail, not a machine for people to work and live in. You know, it was a machine for um, you know, an activity and a manual engaged process machine. And yeah, you know, so that, that's what got us excited. And then it was like, okay, how do we rethink this place and bring it forward in the 20th, 21st century. So, you know, it had this magic problem, I think, of existing structure. How do you extend and retain and keep personality and character? How do you resituate in the city? And then how do you also weave in a residential programme um, in, in a creative way? But it was, it was a lovely set of problems in a way. And that's, I think, what good architecture needs now is good problems and a good client. Uh, I think that's true, but I think also there's uh, a question I want to put to Glenn, really, which is um, how we avoid the dad at the disco syndrome. Because I think, you know, all of us, when we first met, were sort of engaged with these issues about adaptive reuse and trying to get some of those sort of, um, you know, the edgy symbiosis between living and working and creative industries and social housing and all that stuff. Um, And what's interesting is uh, you two have both been fabulously successful and I'm very happy for you, but you've now moved on to these huge iconic projects where you're sort of somehow magically meant to bridge the world of big developers and high finance and major civic moves with that kind of punk fairy dust or whatever it is that you made your names with. Uh, And it's a difficult balancing act, isn't it? And uh, Glenn, I'm going to go to you because when I first met you, you'd kind of, you know, it seemed very edgy that you'd done the custard factory. It was adaptive reuse. It was all those things which we're talking about now as they're then new. Um, When you look at this building 
do you think, oh, Christ, getting you tuned, we were doing that years ago. <laughs> or can you actually see that this is a kind of maturing and a reinvention that befits uh, the age we're all at? No, I think this is a grown-up building um, because um, we the whole world's moved on. It's not about sort of getting fascinated about finding an old frame anymore. I think um, there's a legitimate and moral issue about using stuff that's been around before. So I don't think, you know, the idea that, you, I don't know how many tons of, you know, carbon you've saved by keeping the foundation and the core of this building, but it's an old idea, isn't it? It's only the idea that, you know, if you were a medieval builder or you were working on a church, you'd have kept and worked with a lot of the stuff that you had around you, mainly because it was difficult and expensive to transport lots of materials. You'd use what you'd got. And I think there's something incredibly lean about this approach of carefully picking over and intelligently reusing bits which are then fit for purpose but add a sense of scale, add a sense of history. But also uh, it's truly sustainable because what you're doing is you're keeping a lot of the stuff that's there. I think, can you imagine the amount of work and carbon needed to dig out all of that foundation then to span across everything and then to start completely again i think it's it's incredibly it's it's so i don't think i don't think it's a fashion thing at all i think it's 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 a really sort of robust solid idea that you work with what you've got and as a byproduct if you can get a story and there's a language which then emerges but i don't think it's the other way around unless you disagree simon Uh, no i think um Glenn's absolutely right. I mean, the, it was a brief period, brave new world, post-war bombing reconstruction, where it was an automatic reversion to demolition. What we, all, all we're doing, it's not just when we met, all we're doing is going back to a pre-war world where you know resources were more carefully valued and buildings were always recycled through history, which is why the image is relevant. I mean, it was pre the obsession with carbon that is very valid now, but I mean, as Glenn said, there's a two meter thick raft in the ground of this building to allow it to span over the railway line. So, I mean, it's, it's just good sense. In fact, I think when we were doing it, when Glenn did the custard factory and we were doing like buildings at the T building, it was all about, it's a rather good building. And I think the Mm. one thing we all learned was, you know, modern offices at that time were tending to be, people talk about white boxes, you know, endless adaptability. I think what we were learning, both of us, was this idea that actually with history and with, with, with retention comes patina and character. And actually you can get, you know, you, it's not about generic space, it's about purposeful, characterful working spaces. And then actually the way people occupy them can be much more imaginative and engaging. And that makes for the current obsession with the future workspace, which is probably no different to the old workspace. You know, it's, it's, you could have occupied this building as it was, except it had no lifts and no stairs because it wasn't for people. Yeah, I think, I mean, that preoccupation with the kind of the storytelling and the narrative that comes with layers of history is something which uh, I know both of you have played with in terms of what you call your buildings and the graphics and how you talk about them and of course the details that you choose to uh, protect and keep and celebrate. Um, Do you want to say a bit more Simon about those apart from of course the incredible volumes and I think we'll come back to that later but those elements of the existing architecture that you actually took as your cue for the new lease of life? We were very interested in this because the way this was made was a machine. Now, you know, it was 
people steeped in modernism, you know, the you know, machine for living in and working in, etc. We were kind of interested in how we were going to strip out all the lovely bits of kits. We found all the old the old graphics, the old signs, but this image of Ponty's office, you know, uh, the, the Pirelli Tower and our building is that idea about you know a link across history that inspired us. And then there's this idea about if this is all this wonderful kit in the building, can we actually kind of develop a skin? Um, because we are going to develop a skin because there's a frame that's there and we're, we're hanging away from that frame, a skin that has architectural character, history and scale. And it became an idea, you know, we talk about Jakobsen, Glenn mentioned Jakobsen to me yesterday in a conversation. Um, and this idea of, you know, a small building that felt big. This is a big building mm. that feels big, but... I was also interested in this image of Donald Judd's studio by Nicholas White and the idea of, you know, the office is a whole lot of flaws, but everyone's slightly different. And, and personalising character, and most people just walk past a building. So what do they see? They see the building, not the inside. And how does that tell a story? So that then inspired an idea of, you know, a reference to Calm, this idea of the railway line and the making and then developing a sort of string course, which you see in this kind of sample board we made here, which is a one and to two and a half scale, which was lacquered steel, not anodized or powder coated, but lacquered steel and polished steel um, for the office building. Uh, London, you know, roach bed, Portland stone for the residential. But the idea that we were going to develop a window and an idea about a large super scale tracery that you see in these drawings that were all contemporary of the idea of shadow and depth and detail going back to that, uh, you know, Judd studio. And that the material quality of the story would reflect the building's history, but of course would be completely new, um, you know, independent of that history. Um, but when you enter the building, you then discover the history again, um, if, if you want to, but it's not, it's not forced upon you. This is AT Conversations with Inevidesk. To find out more, visit inevidesk.uk. Buildings were kept on the outside such as those around Trafalgar Square and other ones that we know about. So they've got historical value. And so, but then they're completely not fit for purpose. So we strip out the insides and then there's elaborate ways of then propping up the facades while we strip, put in perfect BCO compliant grids and service floors. Sometimes, you know, by then having to adjust them as they get closer to the window. There's been a whole two generation, you know, a whole generation has spent their lives doing that. You've completely flipped it round. This is the only project I can think of where actually you've draped a new facade, completely new facade. Mm. There's, there's no, there's nothing left. To, and so, you know, so then you go into this brand new facade and then you've got the shock of finding that not hidden, but there's an existing frame. I was thinking, you know, the ITN building that Norman Foster did back in the 80s, I think on that one, it was keeping the basement and maybe the frame, but you, you had no sort of, it wasn't never evident that there was anything borrowed or reused. On this one, you go into a brand new facade and bang, then you get this sort of found building that you've got inside it. It's a very, it's, it's a complete reversal. I think uh, you're absolutely right. And I think what's interesting is the decisions you make about scale when you're dealing with the facade, given you can kind of do what you want. And um, I was interested, actually, Glenn, I was looking at your building on uh, Chamberlain Square and 
I know Simon's mentioned before that one of the joys of working with the existing structure at the post building was that you kind of had an excuse to have these monumental floor heights because it's there already. You could obviously never justify it if you started from scratch. Um, but interestingly, with your building, uh, you've pretended it's there already. So that building is, what, eight stories high? Yeah. But you've kind of done this sort of beautiful terrain yes kind of facade and kind of implied this monumentality, a kind of civic scale that isn't there. Uh, but that's starting from scratch. It's starting from scratch, but it's just turning around and it's saying, do you know what? Offices aren't just offices anymore. There's something that really sets a civic scale. They've got, a, a, you know, a new gravitas, if you like. Um, so I suppose um, to put it back to you, Simon, did you look at it and think, okay, the facade's new, we can go all snugly and touchy-feely and express the fact that it's a kind of domestic scale, or we can go really big and muscular and grand? And if so, how did you land where you landed? Uh, I, yeah, I know that building by Glenn. Uh, you know, I, I know most of his buildings. I, I look at them, I enjoy them. I think that the interesting conversation I think we've had over the years is, is this idea about... Um, something like Tyranny and the Casa del Fascio and that idea about scale. That building changed from being the house of fascism to the house of, of um, communism. And there's this interesting thing about what role does it play? It's still a magnificent urban backdrop, regardless of the difficulties of the, of the regime that called it into being. So there's a theme about architecture detaching itself from its purpose. And then if you think about you know, the original office, the Uffizi in Florence, it's a it, it's it's a civic event. Um, it, it you know it, it's part gallery, it's part court, it's part home, it's part um, place of work, and it, it, it's part public space. And I think what's become interesting is, you know, obviously highlighted in, in this kind of COVID world, it's accelerated the idea that coming to work is a social and creative event. That's what called the City of London into being. That's what called the West End into being, which is slightly more retail-based. But and, and, and that's why London, yeah, people talk of it as a global city, and that's why McKinsey end up here. But what we were interested in was, if there is this magnificent structure and these magnificent coincidence of the old and new structure coming together, the outside needs to celebrate the uniqueness of it. Now, someone said to me, it's the only New York building in London in its hmm. scale. And we were like, you know, we must make the play at the scale. We must generate the super large window. We must kind of make this some clue as to what people find inside. If they happen to come inside, they can enjoy it. But if they don't and they bother to look, suddenly the soffit through this window becomes the fifth elevation of the soffit of all these floors where you see this amazing uh, structure. It's almost the circuit board. So, you know, for us... The facade was really difficult because it had no rules apart from get some light in. Um, and, and yet there was this frame that we wanted to kind of honour in a way. And, it, you know, what we then developed was this idea of shifting scale that, you know, it, it mattered to us that the building references the castings that we found on the site. Um, and that's why you get the stainless steel framing piece um, and the curved corners, which has, a you know, denotes, as Glenn mentioned, Jakobsen, or the 60s, when, when the building was built. But actually, it doesn't matter to anyone else, but what it does bring to the building is both super scale and then detail. So you can go from, there's a kind of Scarpa idea about designing, architects design from the city to the building, but the Scarpa idea was you design from the detail out. So, in the, so the building was designed from the city scale, but the facade was almost designed from the big window scale 
and the detail scale simultaneously, moving from the one to one, you know, to the to the one to you know one to fifty, and that became a really interesting thing about making a facade, which is something we don't talk about very much because we'll talk about how we've made a, you know, a frame and a building and an architecture and a shadow and a logic, but we will rarely use the word facade because it, 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 it's a face and we don't do faces. You know, we, 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 make, we try and make objects that have a face, but it's not a face that's a product for designing for the sake of beauty. And in a sense, this was about kind of beauty in detail being celebrated. I think there's a, a generational thing as well, though, isn't there? Because I know, uh, you know, I was always taught, and I assume you were, that you do the plan and you do the sections and then the facade designs itself. It was an absolute cardinal sin to design from the elevation first, um, which, you know, is a certain sort of modernist sensibility and an idea about, you know, function coming above all others. And actually, I think, we, you know, we weren't trained to design a facade in isolation. It was considered almost um, unnecessarily facile or self-indulgent. Uh, so, you know, I suppose now that we have CGIs and we have the amazing kind of plethora of internet and all these things, we're a bit scornful of that. We're kind of, oh, it's a petty thing if you do the elevation. So just sitting there and saying, actually, primarily, most of it's a given apart from what it looks like. Was that a scary thing for you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, listen, I, I, I will reference, there's a famous Mario Frascari essay called Tell the Tale Detail, which is about Scarpa moving from one to one to one to 500, back and forth daily on the project, rather than what we were all taught, which I agree with you, that's what we were all taught. That's why we struggle with the word beauty, but we don't mind aesthetics. Mm. Um, mm. So, I mean, you know, this to me, that was, it was kind of scary, but we liked the scariness. We liked being put on our metal. We liked being challenged to think. And that was the nice thing in a way, because we could logically, completely clearly logically say, we're designing a, a beautiful skin that honours the frame, but is not of the frame. And, you know, and, and you know, it's, it's that, another word we struggle with, decorative. You know, that stainless steel framing piece, you know, is a decorative frame to articulate scale mm. um, and, and give detail and give shadow and depth. And all you know, the, the contemporary studies were all about that. So it was scary. But I think being scared and being uncomfortable is kind of where we all want to be. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the best place to be because you're on your metal. How far do you guys think that actually the idea of designing an office, a commercial workplace is a complete red herring? And that now you're really looking at the urban contribution, the robustness, the flexibility, uh, much more than you're looking at the specifics of the function. These things that Simon's making and I'm making are not red herrings, I don't think, at the moment. I think, city, you know, we've had four, I think it's four pandemics in the last hundred years. Cities bounce back. Uh, younger people will continue to need to be in the space with people who've done it for many, many years to then sort of learn. So there's a whole mentoring thing that goes on in any business, in any workspace. And so the, the, the difference has been, though, I don't think many people will be going into Simon's beautiful building to do their emails or to do their spreadsheets. And those sort of things, the, the more mundane things probably will continue to be done quietly in a corner, either of your home or not with a commute. But I do think that offices will be almost reinvented and perhaps changed and given more 
uh, importance because there will be fun places. I think, you know, already you're starting to think about the things that you would do when you can get back in there and celebrate mm. celebrations, you'll be able to explore ideas. So having a six metre high space rather than a 2.7 with a suspended ceiling might be a lot more fun to, 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 to release the potential in us. We can't carry on working separately. And that's why we talk about the offices of public space in a way. How do you reconcile that, though, Simon, with the fact that it is also some people's private space and some people's homes? Um, and I know, uh, obviously, I've worked on housing projects w- with both of you, and there's an awful lot of conversation about the importance of people, you know, having that moment, which is, oh, I've come home, and the threshold, the front door, the sense of uniqueness and privacy. You've obviously created a building which contains social housing, which is fantastic. You can't tell can't tell from the outside you haven't expressed it so you know how how do you insert that kind of feeling of belonging and privacy and ownership how do you make the residents feel special when you've done something that's so civic um yeah i think it's it's i mean actually housing has a civic role in terms of its facade um but but it's a private role in terms of, of once you enter it i mean there's the residential units there's a massive scale shift and then we switch materials. So we retain the same framing device. We enjoyed the fact that you suddenly get, you know, two floors of residential for every one floor of office on a staggered grid. So you start to read a difference. And we rather like the idea that in this strange world that we're making this project in, that the social housing has the most expensive facade in the entire project, yeah. which is roach bed Portland stone, rotated through 90 degrees, framed by stainless steel <laughs> with winter gardens, because one of the concerns was it was quite a noisy place to put social housing. Now, my view is it was south-facing winter gardens with a front door that opened onto a quiet street that leads you into Covent Garden. To me, it's an extraordinary place. And actually, that's what the area was all about. It was about people living cheek by jowl. Um, So I think that was the kind of extraordinary incident in the project was to do that. In terms of kind of making it different, we, you know, our, our, our idea was, there is also this idea about the kind of, uh, the, the facade, um, making a coherent building. Um, it's, it's a different piece of structure. It has a different floor to floor height, but we quite enjoyed the fact that it was both different of the building, but clearly of itself as well. And actually, I mean, they're rather nice apartments. Yeah, they're, they're right there. They're well designed, they're well laid out. We had a different team put on them to make sure they weren't the kind of, adjunct to the main driver of the project so in that sense um it's not made folksy it's made urban and i think if you live in the middle of mm. london in a building of this scale they have their own roof garden they have their own private they have a shared roof garden they have private uh winter gardens but there's quite a nice idea that i live it i live in a palazzo yeah i think that's quite a nice idea i live in a palazzo and it's not been turned into the little brick bit on the side to make it you know, it's kind of, wow, I live in this extraordinary uh, palazzo in the middle of London with, you know, with the most expensive finish of any social housing. Yeah, that to me is, is the moment allowing us to do something that challenged the norm, which is the social housing might, not with projects we might do or Glenn might do, but it's sort of, it's somehow not of the same architectural import. Here it's actually almost the most refined, but the scale difference tells you it, it's something else. This is AT Conversations with an Everdesk, making powerful, affordable virtual desktops a reality.
going back to the issue of the facade, I look at it, I think, early SOM, I think there's a real hint of nostalgia. Um, when I look at Glenn's, feel free to disagree with me in a minute, both of you. But when I look at Glenn's recent office work, I see another kind of nostalgia, which is almost more very pared down classicism. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of intrigued and we all know there's nothing completely new but I'm sort of intrigued by those aesthetic choices. I think you both came from quite similar routes, but you've landed somewhere slightly different. Uh, in, is that a fair assessment? I would say that's a fair assessment of this building against a new building by Glenn. But if you were talking about a new building I've done, you would not see a building like this. You know, me and, me and my teams, if it was a new building, yeah, the, the, we, we adopt an Albertian rule, nothing needs to be added, nothing can be taken away. If the structure's a third of the cost, and it's the thing that goes up you know, first and comes down last, then it should be expressed and should actually define the architecture. We're not saying we all modulate it, because it's not your early kind of, you know, your, your student experience of we don't design, it just happens. We will mm. modulate the grid. We will talk about going nine metres internally, four and a half or three on the facade to create rhythms. We'll talk about shadow and depth um, and it being of the frame and of the architecture. But in this case, there was no frame. So it became pure architecture. So I would say this is very different to the, you know, the work of Glenn you're referencing, but also very different to the work of ours, because it's a sort of, as Glenn said, it's a weird one. It's a bit of a one off where it's the opposite of facade retention. Yeah, it, it, it's which has been the London disease. It's it's, yeah. it's frame retention, facade invention, um, and that's quite a nice challenge. I'm glad I don't, you know, don't, don't. That was your analysis, but I don't no. Know. But what Isabel's question, I think, was about you know where are we coming from in terms of um, we're both harking back to something as we get older, and mm. we're, we're you know we're not we're not young anymore, Simon. Sadly, it's hard to um, believe. Isn't it? it is, but. I think my take on it is that I'm, and with the people I work with here, we sort of we're not that in not that focused on trying to be groundbreaking and breaking, doing things only because they're new. I think what's more important is to do things which work and are brilliant. And sometimes uh, that, or, or, you know, that starts often with understanding. It's going to be there for a long time. It's got to be really well made. It's going to enrich people's lives. It wants to be great. And you can't do that if you're always stretching further to make it more shocking or different. So it's yeah. actually, actually it's a great, the one compensation for getting older is that you feel more confident in your own skin and the ability to do things at your pace or not necessarily have to shock people into giving you the next commission. I think both of us are pursuing ideas which are not about necessarily grabbing attention, but are really relevant to doing the strongest work we can. I think Glenn's right. I mean, I think the Mies line is, I don't want to be interesting. I just want to be good. I think, you know, I have a joke with a team, which is, you know, you can only reference a dead architect. Um, <laughs> sort of to stop the idea that people are almost leaping through a, a current catalogue of, of, you know, like like a Dunelm catalogue of architecture, that what, what do you want today? And actually trying to situate it in the bigger picture, because by the time we build the building, it might take 10 years anyway. If we were looking at the contemporary moment, the contemporary moment's gone. So we're steeped in the immediate past, 
you know, we're steeped in the present by the culture that we walk down the street and that we live in. And then there's our long-term architectural history. And it's how do you bring all those to bear as a studio to make architecture that you think is kind of convivial, engaging, convincing and long-term? And there has been, and you know, I'm sure you would agree, there's been a huge decline in, in the outlook for architectural criticism on one level. There's another huge kind of opening up of architectural criticism, but it's just image, 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 image commentary through people's it, 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 accounts. Isabel, sorry, I, I will try and disturb Simon. Uh, question for you. You said, yeah. when you set up this talk, did you know that actually the true title of it is from 40 under 40 to grumpy old men. That's what, that's, that's what we've got. Yeah, I had an idea. I had an idea. I hate to, I hate to uh, allude to the fact that we are of a certain age, but obviously the succession and the new generation coming through and how you uh, don't embarrass yourself by uh, not being open enough to new directions, that's something which preoccupies, I think, all of us. Where are you at with that, Glenn? What's the future of Glenn Howes and how much is it yours? Um, we... All I like doing is exploring ideas with the people in the office here. That's great. And then with clients, it's, it's fantastic. So over the last year, we've had more time to sort of quiet down. Some jobs have stopped. And it's been great because I realized what a terrible threat retirement is. Can you imagine <laughs> not having any lovely work to do? You know, work is the one of the greatest gifts. And, I, I, you know, one of my heroes is david hockney and you know he's as he's busier now than he's ever been and he's got i think i i, I saw he's got a little poster in his kitchen where he says the muse rarely visits the idol and i just think keep busy and keep happy and that's it you know the more ideas exploring ideas my god there's so many things we don't understand out there and you've got all these brilliant young people around who are also trying to find the way through the world and then we've had this lot thrown at us let's just i think where i'm at is enjoying exploring more things i mean i think that that's there is an interesting architectural cultural one where people kind of talk about you can't do too many buildings i think you know you can do as many as you've got the energy and the thrill to do you know and, and having had a shit time for the first 10 years of practice any project is an exciting moment isn't it and i think you're absolutely right exploring i call it constructing the idea constructing it as an idea and then constructing it as a building and that's the magic, I think, is is how you turn ideas from, you know, something in, in, in a kind of shared discussion in your head on a sketch, how they become built form that deals with a million other issues. And that, that's that's amazingly exciting. I think Glenn's right. It's, you know, architecture is really complex. Our job is to make it simple because life will make it complicated enough. And I think, you know, we both come from a time where we started offices when we were young. We had no work. And actually what we're enjoying now is actually the more projects you have, the more you engage with stu your studio and bounce ideas around. Actually, I call it constructing the idea, the more, the, the more engaging it, get, it gets. Architecture's got to be fun. It's serious. We've talked about that, but it's got to be fun. And I think we're at a lucky time where, you know, we've got amazing projects, amazingly complex challenges. And it, you know, it, it's great. Let's keep going. Simon and Glenn, thank you both so much for joining me. It's fantastic to see you and uh, fantastic to see the work you're producing and that you're still loving it and you want to keep going because God knows none of us have got any pensions, have we? So uh, let's hold on to that mindset. You've been listening to 80 Conversations with Inevidesk. To subscribe, visit architecturetoday.co.uk forward slash podcasts.